Good morning, everyone. You beautiful people, you. Turn to Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. We're gonna continue working our way through this, um, through this chapter by looking at the next paragraph, which is a, a oft-quoted paragraph. Well, at least the first part of it is often quoted. It starts out with that famous line, do everything without grumbling and arguing. This is one of those verses that is most easily applied to others. Uh, very rarely do we read that and reflect upon our own behavior, but probably even just mentioning it, you probably thought of maybe half a dozen people that you really wish were here this morning to be reminded of this. Um, and so I understand that. It was often quoted in my house when my children are from about the ages of two and nine. It was the most quoted verse in my house during that time. And we did it with all the self-righteousness of classic evangelical parents whenever we did. But this is an interesting thing because it's verses like that that kind of expose why we've kind of banished the Bible in general to irrelevancy and why it is so conducive to biblical in illiteracy whenever we mistreat the Bible as just like a book of aphorisms for good advice. Because although we often quote this verse, do all things like grumbling or arguing, very rarely do we dive into the heart of the verse, which, which is Paul not just giving a behavioral command, don't grumble or complain, but he also tells us why and how that happens. And I think it's really critical that when we get into a verse like this, that we spend more time on the why and the how we actually respond to this. So let's take a, let's kind of walk through this paragraph, verses 14 through 18. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. And now he's going to say why at verse 15, in verse 15. So that you may be blameless and pure, which is very interesting that he connects a righteous life directly to the influence of grumbling and complaining over our overall mental state or the practice of our lives. He connects these two things together. And he says, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. As I've said before, I've read lots of evangelism books and I've taken, gone through lots of evangelism classes. I was really into that, especially when I was in younger. I loved it. Not so much because people came to the Lord, but just because it created great stories to tell at youth group of all the confrontations I had as I was persecuted for being a jerk for my faith uh, and called it evangelism. And so, um, and so, so in those classes and in those models for evangelism, rarely, no, not rarely, never was it listed. One of the primary ways that we bear witness to Jesus is by shutting our mouths. But that is what Paul is saying. One of the ways we present ourselves as shining like stars with the analogy there is points of life behind the backdrop of a canopy of a darkened space. And, and we shine as points of life in part by simply not participating in the noise that we hear from the world. It's one of the great temptations, for example, of social media because it beckons us to get on there and complain just like everyone else does. 
And we rarely speak the faith and the hope that we have, even if the country or the government is in a place that is undesirable to us. It's just easy to get caught up here. But don't forget, one of the greatest ways that you can bear witness from Jesus for, for Jesus is simply to refuse to participate in the grumbling and the complaining. That's what Paul says here. It's a really effective tool. And he says, so, so, so that you shine like stars in the world, verse 16, now then we start to get to the how. By holding firm to the word of life. This idea, like we can take verses like that and because we're inundated with kind of self-help um, approaches to reading the scripture, uh, we can miss the point. Like it is difficult to have complaining people in your life. And you know, you reach a point where you just want them to stop and be quiet. And I get that we emphasize that, but, 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 but we, we keep this idea at a level of personal annoyance. When in reality, what Paul's saying is if we give ourselves over to an atmosphere of grumbling and complaining, it will create an obstacle to our ability to continue to cling to the word of life. It will work against that, that word of life being the word of the gospel, the word about Jesus and what he has done, and the word that contains the teaching of Jesus and what he calls us to do and how he calls us to live. And so, so we do so, by, do so by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. So this is very interesting. Paul even equates this with failing in his ministry if they don't grab a hold of this one point. Stop complaining and grumbling because you are supposed to shine like stars and the way you do this is by holding on the word of life. And if you hold on to the word of life to the end, then I know that in the day of Christ, I will not have labored in vain. So that's a pretty significant weight that he's putting on this advice to just be positive. Um, he's putting a lot of weight on there because he says it affects your ability to be your identity in the world as shining like a star. And it would also mean for me that if we didn't break free of this, I actually would have labored in vain. 17, but even if, I'm, even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the service of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Here, Paul is echoing back to the same sentiments that we looked at in chapter one, that my call to ministry might result in my death, and this is not something that brings, fills me with grief. It fills me with joy, and I am asking that, that you rejoice with me. I will serve you. Listen, this, this, is, this is the heart of a true pastor. I will serve you till it kills me, is what Paul is saying. I will serve you even if it means leading to my death. And this is something that I'm not bitter about or I grieve over. This is an honor and a joy for me. Verse 18, in the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So let's take a look at this. And, um, and hopefully we meditate for just a few minutes on the depth of this paragraph. And we come away from an application that's larger than just don't be a negative Nelly. 
which is kind of the way we kind of distill these kinds of little bits of advice of scripture. What I want you to do is, what I wanna do is, is you've seen where I've highlighted the key phrases within that paragraph. And I've told you before, I'm not trying to take away from the Bible. When we, when we finish our process of interpretation, we wanna put it all together and, and see how all the parts relate to the whole, but it is important for understanding the Bible sometimes to pull these phrases apart because some of them are main phrases, some of them are action-oriented verb phrases, and some of them, especially in, in Paul's writings, is there's just a lot of descriptive phrases in the middle that sometimes we get down in the weeds of all the descriptions and we kind of miss the main idea that's being communicated. So if we distill the primary idea that we see coming from this paragraph, it would be this, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure by holding firm to the word of life. And then if we wanted to even get even more specific about what Paul is saying, commanding and how we do it, we might even leave that middle part out and just read it this way. Do everything without grumbling and arguing by holding firm to the word of life. And so what's important that we see that in contextualizing this, Paul's not just being a clever life coach and telling us to be more positive that if it would be more positive, things would go better. What he is saying is that there is an attitude, there is an atmosphere of the heart that produces a habit of murmuring, complaining, and arguing. And that atmosphere of the heart threatens our commitment to holding fast to the word of life. So this is more than just inconvenient. What Paul is doing is he's operating his skill as a spiritual surgeon and he's doing heart surgery. And he is saying these little attitudes that we learn to just live with and assume are the norm can threaten the, uh, the health of our faith and threaten our faithfulness to tr finishing the journey holding tightly to the word of life. And so it is, it is way more than just being negative. And, and it's important to see this because verses like this are misused. And we, we, we kind of use these kind of weapons, I mean, these kind of verses as weapons, don't we? I mean, we know when it's time to pull a good Bible verse and thump it over the head to the people that we live with. And this is one of those that's easy to do that with. But what I want you to see is this, this goes beyond venting your frustrations. This is beyond simply having a bad mood. And Paul is not saying if you would just confess positive things, then life would go well. This is something that runs much deeper and the, and the grumbling and the complaining, what's critical for us if we want to submit to the spiritual physician, that is Paul here, is we have to recognize that this, this, this habit creates an atmosphere of the heart that is not conducive to faith. So Paul is specifically bringing out the words grumbling and, and, and arguing. He is telling us that it will create an obstacle to their holding firm, or telling them, it will create an obstacle to their holding firm to the word of life. This is the kind of grumbling and complaining that creates this atmosphere of heart that is antagonistic to faith. And instead, we have to cultivate and practice gratitude and surrender to create an atmosphere of the heart that is conducive to the flourishing of faith. It's really important, especially when we're looking at these ethical commands, the behavior that Paul is addressing, that we are mindful of what is it that is motivating the behavior that Paul is addressing. Because if we just try to be more positive, number one, you'll become really obnoxious. 
And, um, and, and I have done that where I just try to be positive. Or I grew up if the version of the faith that, that, that really promoted the idea that if you were honest about negative things in your life, well, then you were gonna increase the amount of negative things in your life. And so you denied those things and you just spoke positive things of scripture and hoped to diminish the influence of those negative things. Verses like this seem to lend to that kind of thinking. But th this is not the idea that Paul is addressing. The question we have to ask isn't just are we displaying toxic behavior? But what is the atmosphere of my heart and mind that is being created by continually persisting in some particular kind of behavior? So I think that what Paul's talking about here is not just having a bad day, not just venting negative emotions. He's talking about allowing an attitude of bitterness and cynicism to settle in and become the atmosphere of your heart. Is it going to wreck your faith because you have a bad day and complain? No, you may ruin an evening, you may ruin a date, but it's not going to knock you off course. But settling in to an atmosphere of cynicism and bitterness, which is the reason why you're always grumbling and complaining, it is not the grumbling and complaining, that is just the fruit of the real problem, which is this overall attitude of cynicism and bitterness that maybe you've been tempted to rest in. And it's okay to be bitter for a season, but pretty soon if we're not cautious, those seasons become lifestyle habits. Those lifestyle habits then become a, a, a normalized atmosphere of our heart. And sometimes we then even become numb to their reality. Now, one of the reasons why I say this is because the Greek words for grumbling and complaining or arguing, depending on your translation, are the, this is not a new phrase. In fact, if you go over to the Greek translation, translation of the Old Testament, uh, um, which is a, 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 a document with which Paul would have been thoroughly familiar, way more brilliant and understanding of it than we could even hope to be because he was steeped in it. But if you go back to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same words that Paul uses for grumbling and complaining, these are the words to characterize the journey of Israel during their time of 40 years in the wilderness. So once again, we are talking about something that is a heart issue, not simply a habit issue. You may just have a bad habit that you're negative all the time and somebody lovingly needs to slap you and say, stop doing that, okay? Sometimes that's the best advice. That's, that's my counseling go-to. Just stop doing that. Um, but at other times, it's beyond just a bad habit. The problem is it's become an attitude of the heart. And this, I think, is what Paul is referring to because he's using this phrase, and he, in, in doing so, he is echoing the same idea that we see back in the Old Testament for Israel's journey in the wilderness. So let's just do a quick survey of that, shall we? And some of us might feel a lot better because we might find out we're actually doing a lot better in the spiritual journey than we thought. So first of all, the first time the grumbling happens is we're tracking through and we're, we're going through the um, narrative of the Old Testament with the senior high on Wednesday nights, really loving those discussions. And this is where we are in, in, in our discussions this year is at the parting of the Red Sea. So if you've raised in church or you've seen 
you know, the uh, Val Kilmer animation or the maybe the Christian Bell version of this story. I don't know. I haven't seen the Christian Bell version of the story. I'm guessing it's not exactly faithful to the biblical narrative, but nonetheless, um, you, you, you know kind of the story. Or maybe, maybe you're all familiar with Charlton Heston. I mean, we watch the Ten Commandments still every single Easter. Not just me, but my children actually watch that every year. Um, and so, so we're kind of familiar with this story. What happens is Israel gets released. They've been in captivity for over 400 years. God delivers them, sends them out into the desert. And even the, the Egyptians are so anxious to see them leave, they're giving them their gold as they go. So not only are they liberated, but they're actually quite prosperous in their liberation. And they leave Egypt and then Pharaoh changes his mind and he's gonna come and he said, you know, forget this. We need the slave labor. I don't know why I was convinced. We're gonna go get those guys. And so they're scared. They don't have weapons. They're out wandering through the desert and they come across this blockade of the Red Sea. And as they're standing there, they're sunk. And so they don't know what to do. They know they're going to die because now they've left Egypt, making the Egyptians even Angrier, and you've got a cavalry. You, you, you've got you've got a, you've got an army on horses coming and and chasing you down. There's no hope, and it, this is why this is one of the grand stories of our faith. Because what happens in that situation of no hope is that God shows up in powerfully miraculous ways to do what they could not do in themselves, and so. Moses holds up the staff, God parts the Red Sea, and he doesn't just part it, he just moves it so that there's a wall of sea on each side, and it's, the text says they actually walk across dry ground. And so clearly, whatever approach we're gonna take, if we're gonna like go the scientific way and say, well, now how could this have really happened? And then some of us are like, ah, science, science. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, whatever. You, you all go have a Reuben and discuss your various points of views. But the point in the story itself that we're supposed to take away from it of people of faith is that God moves when the circumstances seem impossible. That God comes in and he makes a way where there seems to be no way. And they pass through on dry land. And on top of that, when the Egyptian army comes in after them, then the wall of sea is released and it comes down and drowns the Egyptians. My friends, set aside biblical criticism for a second and just read the literature of the story. This is a miraculous story of epic proportions. They have just witnessed the power of God in a way that defies not just expectations, but actually that would defy the law of how the universe is governed even. That's how powerful their God is. Their God is the one who set the laws and motions, and if he wants to supersede them, he can do so just because he wants to. But in this case, it's not just because he wants to, it's because he loves Israel, and he's chosen to set his favor on her and therefore to protect her. The first incident of complaining happens 72 hours after this event. You know, you ever had these conversations where they're like pseudo-intellectual, pseudo-philosophical conversations, and someone might say, if God would just make himself more evident, we would all believe. Okay, that is a vast ignorance of reading any of the wisdom of the Old Testament. Because if you see, if you read the stories of the Old Testament, you see God can show up and manifest himself and our insecurity in our identity as um, those cut off from God runs so deep that even in doing so, 
those miracles aren't enough to cause us to believe if our hearts aren't liberated by the inner work of the Holy Spirit. You can see miracles all the time and yet be dead to them. They can't, they don't necessarily move you. And that what's, that's what clearly is here because 72 hours later, three days later, is their first incident of grumbling and it's because when they found water, it was bitter. And so they complained. Instead of prayer, instead of dependence, instead of trust, they complained. That's the contrast that's here. And you know what God's response to that was? He made the water sweet. Then the next time we see them grumbling and complaining is they depart and they grumble because they're hungry. They don't have the food that they used to have. They have liberty, but they don't have access to the food. You guys remember the old Keith Green song? So you want to go back to Egypt? Have none of you ever heard that? Well, let me just step over to the piano for a second. I just prepared. <laughs> Eating leeks and onions by the Nile. Oh, what breath, but dining out in style. Moses just seems rather idle. He just sits around and writes the Bible. Oh, Moses, put down your pen. Oh, Lord, manna again. You guys got to go Google the Keith Green song. I'm the only one enjoying this here. That is the essence though, they complain. And the God who took such care to deliver them by defying the laws of the physical world and empowering them to do what they could not do on themse for themselves, when they get hungry, they begin to doubt his goodness and they begin to doubt his provision and they start longing to go back to Egypt. And what does God do in the face of that unbelief and lack of trust? He graciously provides the manna. And so he sends them, he sends them manna, enough food for every single day. Well, then shortly after, they come across another situation where they are without water and they complain again. Yeah, we have manna, but, manna, but I don't have anything to wash it down with. At least I could grab a good Guinness while I was in Egypt. But what does God do? He kindly provides them with water. Then, then it starts to get tiresome as you start reading the narrative. The next the attitude of complaint happens that they depart from Sinai, and this is where they sound the most like modern uh, people. They just complain because it's hard. <laughs> this is just so hard. I'm just so tired. Well, what happens to that, in response to that, a fire is set throughout the, within the camp and several of them die. So now, now we see this storyline, this, 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 this arc of the, of the narrative that says that the complaint is met with mercy and more miracles, but the mercy and miracles aren't enough to alter the cynicism and the fear that's gripped their heart. So eventually, although the complaint is first met with mercy and with miracles, eventually, if you don't let that go, it leads to something that's way more destructive. And we see that there in the narrative. Um, then they complain because of the manna. Well, yes, God, you provide manna every day, but come on. You can only do manna benedict and manna souffle for so long. I mean, this is like this is like two weeks out of Thanksgiving and we're still eating turkey hash. I need some variety. So, so then it, the Bible actually says that God's anger blazed hotly at them. And so he sent quail, 
Well, they all gorge themselves on the quail, and then they get sick, and then a plague is released throughout the camp, and many of them die. So do you see the progression? It's like what happens over time, this legitimate understanding of human uncertainty gives way to an attitude of the heart, and that's when it starts becoming toxic and destructive. And, and that's the progression of their journey. And then at the end, we know the big story, they are finally brought to the promised land. And that generation says, no way. The God who parted the Red Sea and fed us supernatural food from heaven and brought forth miraculous water where there was no water before or not drinkable water, there's no way he'll be with us to overcome the obstacle of clearing out the land and possessing the promised land. And what happens to that generation none of them see the promised land. That's when, there's this, that's when there is that narrative bit of the journey of Israel where there are 40 years in the desert. You remember growing up reading those stories and thinking to yourself, how stupid can people be? You would think at this point, they would get it. And then you grow up in the faith and you realize God had to take you on a journey through the wilderness as well. Some of you may be smack dab in the middle of it. Some of you may be learning the lesson and you're toward the end where you're ready to yield. Some of you, you're so strong and full of self-resource that you're in the beginning of it and you've got a long 40 years ahead of you. Metaphorically speaking, for some of you, some of you it might be quite literal, was for me, but enough of that. And so, so then what happens is this. Understandably, humans are apprehensive and afraid. That is met with this season of miraculous intervention and affirmation, not rebuke. Over time, though, they don't let go of that attitude of unbelief, and it results in um, toxic, destructive activity taking place among them to where people, are, the, the story reports that people are literally killed. And then by the end is the worst of all. It says they are never able to enter his rest. This is what an atmosphere of bitterness and cynicism in the heart ultimately produces. You will lose the joy and the ability to rest in the completed work of Christ on your behalf. And instead, you're filled with agitation, anger, bitterness, and anxiety because the final result is they didn't enter the rest. Now, what do we do with this? Well, If I were a good life coach, I would share with you techniques about how to be more positive people. But we've established that is not what I am. I think, ironically, the only way to reject the cynicism and bitterness that, re that, that bears the fruit of a constant complaining, murmuring life is to learn how to complain correctly. The opposite of complaint is not positivity. That's disgusting. Go, read, go Google the phrase toxic positivity and you'll be like, oh, yep, yep, yep. You know, you know, it's not enough to just say empty positive things and make me wanna scream and slap you and say, have a real human moment for a second, as people have done with me. The opposite of complaint is not positivity. The antidote, the antidote to complaint is lament. 
because we are not steeped in a spiritual tradition that has educated us in the long-standing tradition of the gift of the prayer of lament, we are not taught what to do with the dark negative forces that will always persist in our heart and our lives as part as being part of a kingdom where we walk by faith and not by sight. Too often times what we see is very discouraging. And especially if you were handed a toxic spirituality that rather than saying lament, you couldn't acknowledge the darkness that you were facing, then it's all the more dangerous indeed. I have sat with more than one set of loved ones who grieved because look, even those of us who are charismatic and believe in healing, even the resurrection of the dead, this is not what we talk about on platforms and in books, but here's a trick we never, here's a reality we never acknowledge. All those people still die again. Like there may be miracles of disease being lifted off and healed, but at some point we still get old, sick and die. Even if someone's resurrected from the dead, it's temporary. They still get old, sick and die. And it's interesting the way we almost act as if that's not supposed to be part of our transition process, but it is. It's a normal part of what it means to experience the cycle of life. But I've sat with, and, and, and that is a gift. And if you're fortunate enough, what can happen is you are around when a loved one gets ready to transition. If you are a lucky man or woman, when you are lying there in the last moments of your life, you'll be surrounded with love and tenderness and kindness as you look into the eyes of the people who love us. One of the most simple things for increasing our appreciation of life is that with all the speculation about life after death and what happens and this and that, where people go, Here's one rock solid truth that you can build your life upon. I know this for certainty about death. When you die, the people who love you will miss you. To me, that's one of the most important things to remember about death. It is not about whether I have treasure in heaven or a big, nice crown I can throw on the ground or all these other kinds of imageries. It is, did I live well enough did I love well enough that the people who love me will miss me? And so in those moments, it is actually something uh, very sacred. I've walked through that personally, and I even served as a chaplain. And, um, you know, you read that story about Moses in the burning bush, and he has to take off his sandals because he's on holy ground. I've never really known what that was like until I sat in the presence of someone transitioning. And it feels like holy ground. We may be grieving, we may be sad, but there is something almost of the tangible presence of the Spirit of God and His angels that seem to be right with you during that time, and it can be a tremendous gift of closure. This is a time when people offer forgiveness that they refuse to offer for decades of their life. This is when people are motivated to seek out the possibility of a reconciliation that perhaps they've neglected. This is when healing takes place among people. And I have seen families denied that 
because they were taught that they can't acknowledge the death that's clearly coming. And so I am not talking about in any way the denial of reality or the denial of our grief or our anger. In fact, what I am saying is the only way to live free of complaint being the atmosphere of our heart is we learn the discipline and the gift of lament. I am so passionate about it because although I credit lots of variables to my becoming a healthier person, the support and love of my family, the intervention of my medical doctor, and the intervention of some really good therapists and counselors, all of these have contributed to my becoming a healthier person. But I know for certain, had I not learned lament, those would not have been enough to make me healthier. I needed the practice of lament in order to create space, not just to be healthy spiritually, but to be healthy mentally and emotionally as well. And guess what? Our Psalms is full, are full of this example. We're gonna look at one Psalm and introduce the idea, and then we're gonna just turn and look at Psalm 13. You can turn to it in your Bible, or you have it in the notes, and it'll be on the overhead because Psalm 13 is a great encapsulation of the movements of lament. So what is lament? How is it that I don't allow bitterness and cynicism to become the atmosphere of my heart that then leaks out in just this toxic presence everywhere I go? I can't rejoice in anything. That cynicism crowds out joy. It crowds out peace. It crowds out rest. And here's the thing. It's not satisfied with just consuming me. It wants to turn me into a presence that then consumes those around me with my cynicism and my bitterness and my discouragement. And so the way we get free of that is to learn how to make our pain part of our spiritual formation. Remember, we said we're gonna talk about that phrase a lot more this year. Pain is one of the things that the skillful Holy Spirit uses to form us into the image of Christ but we've got to deal with our pain, the same thing that Christ was willing to do with it, which is another reason why the Garden of Gethsemane narrative is so important to our understanding of this life of faith, because here we have the Son of God modeling lament. So the four basis of lament, this was adapted from an article from uh, Mark uh, Vrogrop, who does a lot of work with grief and lament. And uh, so if, if there is... Um, if there's a spirit here that is positive to you, thank God for God and for, uh, uh, and for Mark. Um, but, you know, if you stumble over, stumble over the wording or stuff, that's probably my fault, so. All right, number one is this, process of lament. Seek God during your pain. And it's really important that we understand the difference between disconnected just complaining and actually proactive seeking. Seek God during your complaint. Look at Psalm 77, verses one through three, and I've highlighted in your notes and on the overhead, all of the verbs that we see just in those few verses. Verse one, I cry out, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God and he will hear me. I sought the Lord in my day of trouble. My hands were continually lifted up all night long. I refused to be comforted. I think of God, I groan. I meditate, my spirit becomes weak. 
I, I love this because this is not a trite, um, sentimental psalm. It's saying sometimes when we think of God, the first initial emotion isn't comfort. Sometimes we think of God and we groan. Sometimes we think of God and we groan, not because we don't believe he's good and miraculous, but precisely because we do. And sometimes it's hard to understand why I can get on YouTube or Facebook and hear testimonies of people rejoicing in the circumstances that turned out the way they wanted and, they, and, and, and how do they, if they're a Christian, how do they end that testimony? God is good. Well, what happens over time with those subtle, that subtle messaging is when things turn out right, God is good. Rarely, do we say anyone post, pray for me, brothers and sisters. I am the depths of despair. My doubt is overwhelmingly. My despair is overtaking me because I've done all the praying and Bible reading and my circumstance is not gonna turn out the way I intended. The loved one died. The disease still remains. God is good. We don't do that, but do you see the messaging that gets in our head when we are not thoughtful about these messages. Things are good, God is good. Things are bad, and there's silence. But what we have to recognize is that God is good even in the midst of our pain, and even when we don't feel like he's good, and it's okay to say that. It's okay to think of God and just moan and groan, and that's all the energy you have for any kind of prayer is your groanings and your moanings because your pain is so deep that you absolutely refuse to be comforted. And yet, the life of faith cries out to God and seeks him in spite of that reality. Even if it means, I think this is useless and stupid, Lord, which I've said that before. I don't think my prayer will move you at all. Clearly something, I've done something wrong because you are clearly set against me. But will you help me? Will you come be a presence in the midst of this darkness? So with our pain, we begin to seek the Lord. And then the second most important step is you gotta learn how to complain well, my friends. There is a healthy way and an unhealthy way to complain. Look at Psalm 13 as we walk through these few verses. Verse one, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? These kind of psalms are present these kinds of words are present all through the Psalms. We have to understand that one of the key ways that God forms us is us learning to trust him by venting our complaints to him, even when we're actually angry with him. One of the questions I love to ask people all the time, kind of just become a habit now, but it's fascinating to hear people's responses, is I like to ask, so is life all that you hoped it would be at this point? The younger they are, they tend to say either no, but they tend to say more affirmations. Yeah, pretty much. But according to my unofficial survey, the older the people get that I ask that question to, it is 100% absolutely not. 
And I like that insight because it helps me when I'm complaining that life is not turning out like I thought. I know, oh, this is normal. This is how it's supposed to be. Well, we've got to bring those complaints to God. I didn't sign on for this. This is stupid. This stinks. Where are you? And then someone wants to say, well, Jesus endured everything. Yeah, well, Jesus got to fly away from heaven after three days. So that doesn't comfort me at all. I'm stuck here. That's why I love, uh, go, go, if you want to hear a good example of a lament, lament go uh, uh, look up Rich Mullen's song, Hard to Get. You know, you who live in radiance, do you remember what it was like to live down here in skin? We, we, we can't break free of the things that we're trying to let go. It's such a beautiful song of the honesty of the conflict, the existential conflict that trying to live a life of faith has to create for you. Because until you go through that existential dark night of the soul, there is a level of immaturity you simply can't grow beyond. It is only in the fires of pain and lament that we wrestle with God like Jacob wrestled with the angel. And at the end of that, he blesses us, but we forever walk with a wound. We're limping the rest of our life, but it's okay because we wrestled through it. And that wound is a source of wisdom for us. So you complain, how long, Lord, this really stinks? How long are you gonna put up with this? How long are you gonna ignore me? Then ask God to help you. Look at verse three. Consider me and answer me, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. Oh, this is the other thing. When you're like this, it's okay to be a little melodramatic. In fact, it's helpful. You know, it's not enough just to say, Lord, I'm suffering. If you look at Elijah, you look at the psalmist, what you're supposed to say, I'm suffering worse than anyone else who's ever lived. No one else has ever had it as bad as I have had it. And on top of that, I got this way because I was trying to do you a favor and serve you. That kind of talk is all through the scripture. It is indicative of a spirituality that matters. Now, I don't want to get too meddling here, but if we don't care enough to complain to God, it's probably because our spirituality is not a significant source of our own development and our own value system. Because the more you love and the more you see his beauty, the more it creates a conflict whenever it seems to be refused to you. And so we engage with that. I mean, we say, this stinks, but Lord, I need your help. Consider me and answer me, Lord, my God. Restore brightness to my eyes. I, I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have triumphed over him and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But what I want you to see in this, even though it's a little melodramatic, it's like over the top, I'm just gonna die and my, my enemies will rejoice. Although sometimes that may be the situation you're in. Most of the time it isn't. It's just usually that, anyway. Um, but in the midst of that, you are seeking God, you're complaining, but then there's that verse three, consider me an answer. I will tell you what is really fascinating about spiritual formation. When you start paying attention to the rhythm in your own life, or maybe part of a group where you are helping to encourage one another, there is somehow this thought that the more mature we become, the, the less we ask God for his intervention. And, and people who are new to the faith or in suffering tend to have this yielded 
posture where they're asking for God's help after actively seeking after it. But then when we get more matured and we learn a little bit more and we require more skill, it tends to take us longer to get back to that simple place of request. When's the last time with the simplicity of a child you ask God to do something for you? Every time I'm confronted with this and I do this thought experiment, I realize, boy, it's been months, sometimes even years. Now, I've prayed about what I wanted and did all the other stuff, but I never stopped and said, God, will you provide this for me? Will you cultivate authentic patience and joy in my heart? What are you asking God to do for you? And if you've gotten out of the habit, I would encourage you to move back to that place because that is the posture that creates teachability, dependence upon God, and the wisdom that Jesus said, which is, you gotta be like a child if you wanna navigate life in the kingdom of God. And so you ask, you ask God for the help that you need. Even if that is something that's counterintuitive of God, would you give me the grace to really love my son during this season of his life? God responds to those kinds of prayers. We just get out of the habit of praying them. So we seek God, we complain, we ask God to help, and then finally, lament does its work when it cycles us back to trust. We trust and sing with thanksgiving. Psalm 13, five and six but I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. Look at these words. My heart will rejoice and I will sing to the Lord. My friends, you can discipline yourself to sing to the Lord, but only the Holy Spirit can make your heart rejoice. You can't pretend that the heart's rejoicing when it isn't. You don't get to choose that. So the heart becomes a barometer to the extent to which I'm yielding to the presence of God because when I can find joy in the midst of my suffering, it is not because of my cleverness or my discipline, but it's because of the goodness and the grace of God. He empowers us to rejoice in the midst of our tears. Now, as we get ready to close, notice the last line. In verse six, the reason why the psalmist can move through these movements of lament is because he says he has treated me generously. He's not speaking from a deep a place of deep faith where he's affirming what God's going to do in the future. Look at that word treated. Is it positive, future tense, or past tense? past tense. This speaks to another strange idea that we see throughout the Old Testament, and it's the idea of setting up memorials. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Remembering. Remembering is the way we increase our trust in the present moment. When we take time to acknowledge and celebrate, wait a minute, Everything here is telling me that I've been abandoned. But now let me reflect for a second with the eyes of faith. You carried me here. You carried me there. You have always 
always been faithful to me in the past. You will be faithful to me today and you will be faithful to me tomorrow. But the way we access that trust is becoming skillful in remembering the specific goodness and grace of God. And what will happen is this. I don't know how the mechanics of this work. I don't know at what point in lament, uh, you know, you can't quantify it. Like this is what we like to do. Lament isn't a formula, folks. Lament so long and then all of a sudden everything will turn around. God will move just, that's not what I'm presenting here. But when we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. It just happens nearly automatically and miraculously. So if we can yield ourselves to the flow and the rhythm of the Spirit to look at things not with temporary eyes but with eternal eyes, if we can look beyond just the present pain and we remember God's past faithfulness, maybe that will begin to alter the atmosphere in our heart. And when it does, all of a sudden, we don't see just justifications for our cynicism around us. All of a sudden, we bump up against miracles all the time. Look, there's resurrection life there. There's mercy there. There's grace there. There's kindness there. There is God turning things around there. And we start to see them differently because we've altered the atmosphere of our heart. This, my friends, is the way we get free of a life of grumbling and complaining. Don't discipline yourself. Become more positive. Be real with your pain. Be real before the Lord with your pain. Be real with trusted friends with your pain and find the kind of friends that don't need you to get fixed in two weeks or they lose patience listening to you. Find a friend that brings a lawn chair to your ash heap and is willing to not just force you to get up and dust off and clean off and go on with life, but they're willing to open up the lawn chair and just sit with you for as long as it takes because they are bearing witness to the omnipresence of the love of God. Would you all stand? And as we get ready to respond in communion, all I want to ask you to consider is where are you in your journey of suffering and lament? Do you need to spend the next five minutes or so meditating and seeking God? Then do so. Do you need to speak, spend that time venting and complaining You have my permission to be a negative Nelly in church this morning. Complain. Or do you seem to ask, God, will you do this in my heart, in my life, in my circumstance, in the circumstance of those I love? Or maybe today, you need to take the next step and just trust. You know my complaint. You know my doubt, my frustration. But I'm standing here to say to you, Father, I trust in your goodness. You have been faithful. And there's no reason for me to believe that you will not continue to be faithful. So although my heart is breaking, what's pouring out of those cracked places is rest, peace, and joy. Because I can trust you.